Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. Please let me introduce this gentleman who needs no introduction uh, for most of you. Uh, Dr. Kent Smith, he's Chief Medical Officer and Founding Practitioner uh, at Sleep Dallas. That is in Dallas, Texas, to be clear, just in case you were wondering. Uh, he's personally helped over 10,000 patients with their sleep apnea uh, in partnership with local sleep docs and other medical professionals. Uh, he is double board certified in dental sleep medicine and has a tremendous passion for empowering folks like you all, dental professionals, to make an impact in their community. So Dr. Kent Smith, we appreciate your time tonight. We're looking forward to hanging out with you. The floor is yours. Everybody out there may have 100% success with their appliances and everybody's happy within a week of delivering them. And if that's you, then you know you probably should just log off now because I'm, I probably see more unsuccess than, than uh, anybody else out there. We have continual problems and we've had to learn a lot over the years of how to handle these things. You know, pretty much every day we get a patient coming in complaining about something, not being able to fix something and their, their snoring is still going on or their TMJ hurts or they just, it, they're still fatigued or whatever. So I've put together some thoughts and uh, talked to my team actually uh, about this as well. And, you know, I've interviewed them and asked them what, what are the common problems that you hear from patients? Because I don't always hear these things. Sometimes my team fixes these things. So let's just kind of dive in here and talk about some of the things that you probably have seen. Uh, let's see, how do I, uh, there we go, okay. So I, first, I, I, many of you may not have considered this, but at least in my practice, the vast majority of my patients are CPAP intolerant. And it's because the world out there in sleep, they, they only hear about PAP therapy. In fact, so many patients won't even get a sleep study uh, because they're afraid they're going to have to get a PAP machine. That's, that's the world of sleep. And so most of the time, these patients have failed PAP therapy and are coming in to see me. So the problem with that is these are already your intolerant type patients. Those patients that are very adaptable and they'll do everything their doctor says and they'll just work at it and work at it until they're used to it, they'll stick with PAP. But those that are easily irritated, they get off of PAP and then they come to see us. And so they're more likely to be bothered by our appliances than somebody that goes to see CPAP first. So we're already battling that to start with. And I'm afraid many sleep dentists don't consider that and know that we're kind of behind the eight ball to begin with. Uh, one thing that I do suggest is that you, you certainly find a subset of patients that you would really rather not treat, that maybe you should opt out. Don't think that you have to treat every patient that comes in your door. I'm sure that you don't do that on the dental side. And I would also suggest that you stay away from it on the sleep side. There are just some patients that you can tell. And I probably turn away at least a patient a day saying, you know what? You really don't need this therapy. We need to do something different with you. Let me refer you or let's try something different. This appliance is not going to be effective for you. 
So I have that discussion fairly often. So let me ask this question. And you said that I can ask questions and people can comment. Okay, so let's ask this. Which of these patients would you rather treat? That female, HI5, kind of pretty high ESS, which means F4 sleepiness scale. I'm not sure the, the knowledge of everybody on this, uh, but, but that stands for how sleepy the patient is. They, that's considered to be excessive daytime sleepiness. And she doesn't snore that much, but she's certainly fatigued. So would you treat her or would you rather treat that male with moderate apnea? Not that sleepy, but his snoring is bothering his bed partner. Do we have any votes? I can't see anything here on, on uh, what people are saying, but. Uh, we got a male all the way, male, he'll appreciate it more, the man. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Of course, everybody is gonna say that. Uh, if you don't, you haven't been doing this very long because you're gonna know how difficult it is to satisfy this female. Now, yes, she officially has sleep apnea, but what, what really bothers me are the, the dentists that will treat this patient and then do a follow-up study. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but certainly that's not gonna do you any good. Um, but yeah, so fatigue is the biggest problem we have in treating. And that's why when I see a patient that comes in and their primary complaint is fatigue, yes, they have apnea. Uh, it's usually a milder patient and it's more than likely a female. Then I, I hedge my bet every time with that patient. And I say, you know, I give them the, the whole spiel. There's no way I can promise you that your fatigue and sleepiness is going to get better. We'll do the best we can. And let's talk about some other things that might help in addition to the appliance. Now, what's really fascinating to me is that there's a phenomenon where we see patients who after treatment and after their apnea is better. So let's say this is somebody with an AHI of 25 and their apnea is controlled, their AHI is now three, but they're still fatigued, they're still a little bit sleepy. There is a real phenomenon there and we don't really know why that sleepiness occurs. Over time, it'll get better. and there's just really no answers, but we actually see it in this study 55% of the time, even with CPAP. So if somebody's wearing a CPAP that completely controls their apnea, and we know it's under control, and we know that apnea is the reason for their sleepiness and fatigue, more than half the time, that will remain for a while until they get used to the therapy. And that same kind of thing can happen with appliances. So some causes of this, you know, maybe they're trying, they've had sleep debt all these years. And I see patients like this regularly. They've been sleepy forever and they're finally getting good sleep and they're just, they're having to make up for it. That's certainly uh, one theory. Uh, sometimes you might consider the fact that now they're feeling really good. They have a lot more energy, they're working out and then they become fatigued because of that. Sometimes, you know, just like the PAP, we. We talk about the PAP being a problem with patients that they can't turn over and, you know, it, it scoots to the side and leaks and wakes them up. And, you know, there's all these problems that can counter the effect that the uh, CPAP is having on them. Same thing can happen with appliances. This, this massive acrylic or whatever you're using in the mouth, sometimes that can create some problems and, and maybe a few more little micro arousals because of it. And then maybe they're just 
they're really craving this good sleep. Now that they've got healthy sleep, they want more of it. So they're just more sleepy. They want to go to sleep because they know it's healthier than it used to be. Um, most of you probably know there's other reasons for fatigue. Uh, the sleep physician in my office, uh, depression is big with her. She always looks at depression at being a reason for fatigue. Um, some of you uh, may be in this uh, condition and, and maybe you're, you've got some depression that's not adequately controlled and you're fatigued and sleepy. Uh, that can certainly be one of the reasons. And you know, any of these conditions, we, we can't rule out anything. So if you've got a patient that has residual fatigue, you've got to look at some other things. Now, sleep hygiene is very important. We lecture people on this all the time. And then with our HSTs, uh, as you know, we don't, most of the time, we're not checking for limb movements. Now, there are one or two out there that will do this. Most of us don't have those kinds of home sleep test units. So we really don't know if they've got periodic limb movement disorder. And certainly chronic fatigue is very difficult to work with. And then another thing, is the patient being truthful with you about wearing your device? Now, you may think when you ask the patient, are you wearing this every night? And they say, yes, I'm wearing it every night, doctor, and it's just not working. Are they really? I mean, you can believe them if you want to, and hopefully they're telling you the truth. But when truck drivers will actually wear CPAP while they're driving to get their hours in, we've seen these drivers do it. There's many uh, reports of this happening then I just don't have a lot of faith in the truth of these patients out there when they claim that what they paid for isn't working. Just like your Invisalign patients, you know, yeah, I swear, doctor, I'm wearing it 24-7. I never take them out. And yet their teeth aren't moving and you're going, yeah, okay. Doc, yeah. I, yes, burning question here. So um, you brought up the residual fatigue from mood disorders like depression. Right. That's also from a medical billing standpoint, it's one of the comorbidities for mild airway issues. How do you determine that? Is there a filter criteria in your visits of what you address first versus after the initial treatment plan? How, how do you normally handle that? Well, we talk sleep hygiene at the very beginning, especially if they've, if they've got insomnia, if they've got fatigue, sleepiness to start out with. Now, if they're just coming in and they're that guy that's just trying to get their girlfriend happy. That's a whole different story, and we don't go into all that. So we have those as well, but I would say a significant number come in with these complaints ahead of time. So we do talk sleep hygiene. Uh, most of them do a pretty good job of it, but I mean, I'm preaching brown noise and pink noise and all kinds of things for patients to try to get better, deeper sleep, because there's, there's some research out now about brown and pink noise, keeping people in deep sleep longer. I'm always looking at the newest research to pass that on to my patients, uh, but sort of we're hedging our bet there because we're saying, you know what, you know, we can help you with your airway. Uh, if you wear this successfully, we're going to help you with your airway, but we're a team here and you're going to have to help us help you. You need to do some things too, because you've told me that you, you smoke. This is here on your health history. Uh, you told me that you only get five hours of sleep. I, I say, we can't, be there with you to make sure you get your seven and a half hours. That's on, that's on you. Yeah. And they, they know it. You know, it's not like they've never yeah. heard that before. No, I love bringing them into the conversation. That's fantastic. 
Uh, what, so uh, just because somebody asked a question on the noises, um, uh, what are the, oh, uh, what's the difference in those, the colors of noise? If you can elaborate, just, I, I know that's a big topic. So a little bit on that and yeah. maybe a recommendation. Well, I think most people know about white noise and, and they're used to that. They say, yeah, I use a fan. That's my white noise. But uh, in reality, both brown and pink noise, and they're a little bit different. And I usually tell patients to try both. I always ask them, do you have Alexa? And about 70 to 80% of them say yes. I say, all right, just ask Alexa to play brown noise for you and they'll do it. Um, sometimes when you ask Alexa for pink noise, she wants to charge you for it. So you have to kind of be careful about that. <laughs> but I, we also have a sheet and I'm happy to send this to anybody. I've got my email at the end. I'll, a sheet explaining the differences between white, pink, and brown noise and, and when to use each of them. Awesome. Yeah. And we will send an email out with the CEs. We can also send that out as well if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. All right. Sure. Uh, obviously, you know, I think probably most people out there are trying to find the most comfortable appliance. In my opinion, they're very close to all being equal as far as effectiveness. Now, there may, may be some differences uh, depending on, you know, the ability to keep your mouth closed. Sometimes, you know, some of us believe that the, the 90 degree fins are more effective than the 70 degree just because it it's, doesn't allow the chin to, to drop back as much. And there, there are some minor changes like that, but basically most oral devices that bring the mandible forward are equally effective. So the biggest goal here is to create the most uh, comfortable appliance, the one that the patient's gonna wear. And the, the, the manufacturers that have started using computers to make these appliances, there are several out there. Uh, they're trying to make them as small as possible, as discreet as possible, as comfortable as possible. And we're just always on the lookout. If another appliance comes out next week, I'm going to try it. If it looks smaller and more comfortable, I'm going with that. But you don't want the patient when you insert the appliance to look like this guy on the left either. It's just something that that's that bulky. Most of the time, they're just not going to keep wearing it, especially if they can't even close their lips. Now, the sleep study can also be very re revealing. Uh, now, if you aren't looking at a polysomnogram or an HST that looks at periodic limb movements, you won't be able to tell that. But limb movements, as most of you know, can create some, some microarousals, some limb movement arousals that will then cause some, some residual fatigue. Um, looking at a study that differentiates between apneas and hypopneas, if you see many more apneas than hypopneas, uh, those are harder to, to take care of. And then sometimes those events are much longer. And most, most, most HSTs will not tell you the average length of an event or, or show you all the different lengths of events. It's just, it's impractical. It's a lot of data. There's just no reason to do that other than when we would love to know, you know, as most of you know, an event is an event, whether it's 10 seconds or 30 seconds or 60 seconds. So if you've got some that are longer, then that's a problem. And then just the, the fragmentation of all of these things combined, because when you look at apneas, hypopneas, rearers, limb movements, uh, you've got restless legs, obviously, but then spontaneous arousals, all of these things can, can continue to create fatigue 
and sleepiness with the patient, even if the AHI is under control. Now, the spontaneous arousal, for those of you that, that aren't, oh, go ahead. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, man, you're on a roll. And I just, I wanted to uh, pop in. We actually, um, small plug, we, we upgraded our interp service this year and we can get the average length and the longest apnea from just about every device out there. Um, so it's, it's pretty incredible. So that data point you're looking for is available. There you go. Cool. I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up because that's great information for situations yeah. like this. Yeah. And, and cool. patients will, a lot of times they'll ask, you know, why? And, and, and actually my team asked me this too. They'll say, you know, their oxygen isn't bad at all, but their AHI is 32. I say, well, those are, those are going to be short events. There's not enough time for the oxygen to desaturate. Right. And then you'll see some, the, the HI is 12, and they spend 12 minutes or 12% of the night under 90. So that would help us to have those discussions, obviously. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Right. So the spontaneous arousal, there's lots of reasons for these. And these are just sort of like unknowns. Uh, some people just have lighter sleep all night long. Usually it's the guy that says, yeah, my wife, she, she just, she's such a light sleeper. It's just ridiculous. I don't snore very loud, but she's a light sleeper and that's why I'm in here. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But, you know, depression can cause these spontaneous arousals, anxiety, uh, even other physical health conditions can cause them as well. So I... I always tell doctors that they really need to be confident in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. There's lots of things that go into this. Uh, we refer to a psychologist for this uh, in our area. Uh, UT Southwestern Medical Center has a six-week program where they meet as a group every Saturday. And I, I'll tell all the patients about this. There's also a CBTI app. So there's lots of help out there for patients if they'll just avail themselves of it. I've kind of divided into five categories. There's ingestibles, and you probably know the problem with all of these things. This, this is nothing new for most of you, but activities, uh, health-related problems, there's the environment, and then there's scheduling. And so if you've, if you've gotten good at counseling patients on sleep hygiene and cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, that'll go a long way for, to help patients appreciate what you're doing. Uh, just today, I had a patient, her HI was five, and she was in with her husband, and she's just miserable, can't find any help. I talked her out of an appliance, and I talked all about CBTI and sleep hygiene. And at the end of the appointment, the husband kept shaking my hand. He said, I thank you so much. Nobody else would have done this. And it's just, it's just the right thing to do. So I suggest that you all learn, if you don't already know about all these things, uh, bone up on it and become familiar with it enough so that you can certainly answer any questions, but also help people understand why, even though their apnea is controlled, they're not feeling great. Smoking actually can create a sticky airway for patients. So I look for everything I can to put it off on the patient. And I'll say, listen, you, you smoke, and it looks like you smoke a few packs a day. Um, when, when you smoke, it creates that sticky airway, and air has a difficult time 
flowing down your air passage. It's just more difficult. It's going to stop the air. So that would be one way that you could help us help you is if you just stop smoking. But nicotine withdrawal can also create those, those arousals during sleep, again, leading to fatigue. Medications, um, most of you are aware of, many of them depress REM sleep, certainly all the antidepressants, uh, which, you know, it's, it's good. I never tell a patient to stop taking antidepressant just because it removes REM sleep. But when I ask them if they were ever told this, um, not one patient has ever said, oh, yeah, my doctor told me that it could affect my REM sleep. But I also think it's malpractice for physicians, and I think they're getting better at this. From my perspective, I'm hearing better reports from patients. I think physicians, primary care and mid-levels are saying to patients, listen, I would love to prescribe you this medication to help you sleep. Um, the problem is you could have some underlying problems. You really should have a sleep study first. Now, I would not have said that five years ago, but these days I'm hearing more good reports like that. And, and I'm not sure why. Maybe the physicians are getting better educated. I, I don't really know, but it's, it's a good thing to hear. Uh, shift workers. Um, I try to counsel all my patients away from this, and I, but I also tell them that there's a study that shows if you have the same patient that has a sleep study during the day and give them that same study at night, their acne will be twice as bad during the day. So it's a fascinating study, and it just goes to show it's harder to treat that shift worker than it is somebody who is working the eight to five, nine to five jobs. So I know a lot of people, especially our engineer types, um, they wanna treat the sleep study and that's just not the right thing to do. I try to guide my patients away from the objective numbers as much as I can, because you'll, you'll treat a patient and you'll look at this, you'll, you'll see them back in the office and they say, listen, I'm feeling great. My headaches are gone. My wife says I'm doing great. I'm not, I'm not coughing anymore. I'm not gasping. I'm sleeping through the night. I only get up to use the restroom one time when I used to do it four times. And they'll tell me all these improvements. And then you'll do a study that shows no improvement in the objective numbers. And then the patient automatically says, this appliance isn't working for me. So you have to be really careful about that. And I sort of have a general rule that if the if the AHI is in single digits, I strongly advise them not to do a follow-up study. I just, I say, you really don't need this. Uh, I, I say, if you're the engineer type and you have to see the numbers, then okay. But honestly, if, if you start feeling better and your snoring goes away, your apnea is under control. We, we can assume that you don't really have to have that follow-up study. Now that may go against the grain of some sleep physicians, uh, and, and maybe some on this call as well. But honestly, that's my philosophy. I've seen too many times where the AHI is uh, eight and you do a follow-up study and it's nine, even though the patient's feeling better. But those things I was talking about before, the length of events, the oxygen, you have to look at different things. And that's why they're feeling better. Those events have gotten shorter, oxygen's improved, fewer arousals but the number is still the number. Um, be careful, 
about treating the sleep study? I gotta, I gotta hop in with a couple of uh, loaded questions here on that one. All right, so, I knew. It was I, I mean, my I got medical background coming from the sleep center days, building those places, working with these sleep docs. You employ one, you work with a bunch. How do you balance that? I, I I'm very aware. You said I start with a single digit in the AHI, meaning we're a mild case. I, you know, you're technically in the success criteria of AHI below 10 for an appliance in the first place. Add some clarity. You, you've obviously got a reputation for doing great work in your community. How do you talk to doctors about what you just shared here? Like, how do you balance that? Well, um, the sleep physician that works in my office, she, uh, she's perfectly fine with that. Okay. Uh, I, I will say, though, that she's much more appliance centric than your average sleep physician because she's seen the success. She's seen, okay, this can even work with severe patients. And what I learned when I was in medical school and, and when I did my fellowship in Florida, um, when I was taught that appliances were the devil and, and PAP was the, was the only way to go, she said, oh, that's not true. I get that uh, now. Yeah. And uh, until sleep physicians see our success, and this is why I tell every dentist that, that talks to me about this, I say, you've got to report back. You tell your patients to tell that referring doctor and tell their physician, this appliance worked great. And if you've got a severe case that, that works, that, you know, we've got, of course, everybody has great stories, but we yeah. have some, you know, HI 63 down to two, those yeah. kind of things. Physicians need to see that. Yeah. Um, but I don't go broadcasting to the other referral sources that I have that that's my philosophy. Sure. I tell you, most of my referral sources now are primary care doctors or uh, mid-levels that don't do the studies themselves. They want us to do the study because we do have a sleep physician in the office. And so they, they kind of trust that it's all going to be done the right way. And yeah. I know most people can't, you know, that's not their reality. So I get that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. It, everybody's going to be at a different spot in their journey. Certainly most are not where you're at in yours. Um, and, and I mean, out of respect for the whole audience, I want to make sure we get that kind of that full perspective on that. Erin uh, hopped in, her sleep doc said the same thing on mild. You're not doing the follow-up test. You're taking the patient uh, subjective information as gospel. Um I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I know you I, enough to know that you're documenting this incredibly well in your chart. Uh, so uh, <laughs> folks, if you're listening and you don't have an EMR that will document this appropriately for your physician colleagues, please make sure you have that. That's incredibly important. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to deter you further. You were on a, a track. Well, I just know we're going to get those questions later. So I figured we'd do it now. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But yeah, that's just a, a philosophy that I've adapted over the years that it, it just it, it disappoints so many patients when they when they don't see the objective numbers get better, even though they feel, you know, with with mild, just like you said, with mild apnea, insurance requires them to have some comorbidities. They've got to have other issues. And once you solve those issues, then insurance wouldn't even cover another study because they're mild. I mean, another uh, they wouldn't cover an appliance. So, okay, let's, let's move on. So, all right, does anybody know who this is?
Anybody respond? You stumped him, man. <laughs> oh, man. You guys don't know who Cal Ripken is? I do. Okay. okay. But Cal I don't Ripken. count. <laughs> okay. So this guy won nine. He was a, an all-star 19 times. He played in 2,632 games in a row without missing one, which broke Joe DiMaggio's record by hundreds. He finally just decided voluntarily to stop the streak. But what can you tell by these two pictures? Can you tell either of those things? Can you tell he's an amazing player? No, I mean, he's got good form, but that really doesn't tell you much. This is like the sleep study. It's a one-night snapshot of what went on that specific night with the patient. Now, I know some studies do two, three nights. I get that. But still, they're snapshots at this, at this specific time of their life. Who knows how representative it is? It's the status of sleep as we know it right now. It's what we use. We use that stupid AHI number to diagnose them and to come up with a... Re because insurance requires it, right? Uh, that HI is the, the worst thing they've ever come up with, but they've been saying they're gonna change this for 10 or 15 years and nothing has ever happened. So we'll see. So I, there's a couple of questions. Uh, it, it, can I hop in here with those yep. specifically related to that? Yep. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said, by the way, 10 to 15 years is a long time to make a statement and not do something about it but we're still here and dealing with what we got. Yep. Um, so Abby uh, asks, what if the AHI decreases, RDI increases, is that still a success? Yeah, I think so because you're, you're adventure, you removed events and you've still got some disruptions in breathing. And so it really depends on how the patient feels. But yeah, if the AHI is lower, RDI is higher, you've gotten the patient better. Yeah. Depending on what the numbers are at that point, but yeah, they're better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so completely other side of the pendulum here. Uh, Alexander asked, um, patient's initial HI was 35, delivered the appliance. Now the patient reports no snoring, wife sleeping next to him again. He feels great. Daytime sleepiness is gone. Everything's rosy. Follow-up study, eight, three months later, AHI is still 35. What do you do? Yeah, <laughs> that's a tough one. I would, I would then look at the oxygen and then I would tell the patient, um, and more than likely the oxygen is going to be much better at that point and the events are going to be shorter, right? So if your HI was 35, uh, you, it could have been 35 with the average event 35 seconds. And now the average event is 11 seconds. Yep. So, so it might not be that much longer, uh, maybe advancing a little bit further before that 35 drops, whoo down to six or something. Um, yeah. But if you if you can't get it, you can't get it. If it stays 35, it's 35. And then just have a, an honest conversation with the patients. I know you're feeling better. I know you've nicked your wife and all this, but the research shows because of the stupid AHI number we're using yep. that you're not healthy and this could be damaging to your heart. So we yep. need to speak to your physician again and maybe you can try CPAP again. You know, just have that conversation. Yeah. And I guess a follow on to that. So obviously, further conversation adjustment on the appliance, if possible. 
right beyond that at what point do you as the doctor say okay now it's combination therapy adjunctive therapy bring the physician in and now it's this plus something else when would you use that as the what criteria does do you launch into that yeah well i don't i don't give up yet because and and that's in in some slides coming up so let me kind of get there and and i think yeah. i'll address those things sounds good so i mentioned this already um, we're talking weight loss too, because you know, 50%, well, it's the number one predictor for apnea is weight gain. So knowing that, we know that if you can get them to lose weight, um, and, and the problem is there are some issues with the obese patients, uh, something called tracheal tug, which I learned from John Rimmers many years ago. Uh, he described this first, maybe somebody else made it up, but he certainly gave me some knowledge in, in this area. It's just that tracheal tug is like Mexican handcuffs and the airway becomes much thinner when you have a lot of extra weight. And when that happens, again, it's harder to make the air travel down that narrow airway. So there's some issues with obesity and this is why we, we do like to treat it. Um, here are some good studies that show that it can have a significant impact on AHI. Uh, again, we have to use AHI. That's what the research uses. That's what insurance uses. That's what we have to do. So we're using AHI here. AHI uh, going from 55 to 29, 57 to 14. And this is just with weight loss. And we see it with our patients as well. So I think counseling on weight loss, I'll tell you that anecdotally, and this is just a guess, I would say 95% at least of physicians or sleep physicians that you'll see it see in the report uh, discussed uh, weight loss. They haven't really discussed it. It's boilerplate that they have to put in there just to kind of cover themselves. I really think most of them don't talk weight loss. Uh, now, primary care doctors, yeah, they probably do. But sleep physicians, they have more things to worry about. And so they're not, they just don't have time to talk weight loss. What we do, we, we can counsel patients on it. Uh, I went as far as bringing in a nurse practitioner. Uh, Katie here has spent seven years in a weight loss clinic. And uh, Dr. Debra, my sleep physician, uh, was struggling with handling all of our patients and meeting them to face-to-face to -face before sleep studies. So she needed some more help. So we found this nurse practitioner that had been teaching weight loss, prescribing meds for weight loss for seven years. And she was looking for something new. So we brought her on. And she's just been amazing. Um, the, the problem is we're starting to get overrun with patients wanting in to come and see her. Uh, and we're not quite sure what to do. But one thing I did tell her is that she needs to put into her regimen, they can't get treated for weight loss until they first have a sleep study to rule out sleep apnea. So it's sort of a loss leader. We don't make a lot of money on the, on the weight. Uh, weight counseling and weight prescriptions, et cetera. But we do have the room now, so once we move into a new facility and we're using that. Something for some of you may want to consider. Uh, here's just a really quick story. I'll tell you about, uh, we'll just call her Carol because that's her name. And she came in to see me. Uh, she had an HI of 92. And she couldn't even walk across the room without having to sit down. She was so exhausted, so tired, so fatigued. Uh, she just really couldn't function. So 
but she was pap intolerant. She couldn't, she tried, she just, she couldn't do it. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's see about this. Let's, uh, let's make an appliance, see how it works. Uh, the placebo is amazing because in a week, she said she's feeling much better and that's impossible, but placebo wise, she thought she was. Uh, my assistant, not knowing any better said, okay, let's send you home with a sleep study. I wanna see how you are. And I think the AHI went down to 89. So obviously she wasn't there yet. Now, fast forward 18 months. This is where she is. Um, her AHI is now down to 5.1, but it's because she's lost a lot of weight. She realized she started feeling better about herself because she's doing something for herself. She started wearing an appliance for her apnea. She said, you know what? I'm doing this, I'm gonna start walking, I'm gonna start eating right. This is without any surgery, nothing, no weight loss surgery at all. But she was still using oxygen at night. She, she really didn't want to stop using oxygen. It was just, it was sort of uh, her backup. Um, it, was, it was her pillow, her, her pillow that she had had from, from the time she was two years old. It's her safety blanket, it's whatever you wanna call it. She, loved using the oxygen. So it took me a while, but another 18 months later, uh, she had lost some more weight. And I said, all right, Carol, I think now what you need to do, let's try you without oxygen and set your alarm. At four hours later, you can, you can put your oxygen in. And that's what she did. And as you can see, her oxygen never dropped below 90%. Apnea is essentially gone 0.7 with an RDI of seven. So it's amazing what weight loss will do. Now, did the appliance itself do this? No. Can we, would we have gotten her HI from 92 to 0.7 with no weight loss? No. It's the combination that makes this all work. So please don't forget about talking to your patient about weight. They've heard it before. They know that they need to lose weight. It's not like you're telling them anything new. So don't be afraid to do that. 170 pounds lost in three years. Uh, even her glasses lost weight, see that? All right, uh, there are some studies on this as well. If you don't think that it, it's really true or this is just anecdotal, no, there's plenty of studies showing. Uh, this is impressive though. This showed that two, two to four weeks after bariatric surgery, even before they had lost weight, their sleepiness improved and they hadn't even had a sleep apnea improvement. Their OSA was still the same. So you, you never know. Some of this is probably placebo. Again, they're doing things for themselves, but they, they theorized it could also have something to do with cytokine release. Uh, nasal resistance. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on this because every one of you probably are very well aware of this. I, I can't tell you much other than to reiterate that the, the biggest non-responders are those who don't have good nasal airway. And, and you've got to create those relationships with ENTs, um, talk about different things that they can do on their own, but certainly nasal resistance is, is important to clear up. There's Neomed, Breathe Right strips. Um, there's the, the company did the original studies with those, so we didn't put a lot of credence in that, but then other studies came out showing that these breather out strips actually work. So I'm suggesting to most of my patients who don't score out well on the rhinometer that we use, I tell them to try breather out strips, that's the easiest. 
Uh, nose cones is something else that you can use. Uh, we carry various types in our office and I give them the option of internal and in, uh, enlargement or external uh, pulling pressure. There's also something called Viver for those of you that aren't familiar with this yet. Um, it's, it's been around maybe a couple of years, um, but EN, more ENTs are using this now. They uh, can do it in office, actually. It's an in-office 20-minute uh, treatment if they're willing to do that. Now, some ENTs say, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to do it in conjunction with turbinate reduction and nasal deviation septum uh, fix. So they, they want to do it all at the same time. They don't really want to do this as a separate procedure, but there are some ENTs that will do this, and it, it can create a significant improvement in nasal breathing. Again, I'm always looking for other ways for my patients to breathe better through their nose because the appliance works better when they can breathe through their nose. What about changing the vertical dimension? There's some, uh, 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 there's quite a bit of research about this, but ultimately, some patients are gonna do better with increased vertical and some are not. So you kind of have to figure out who those patients are. There's no way that you can say, well, if, if 80% of patients do better with increased vertical, um, I'm just gonna always increase the vertical. Or if 80% do better with no vertical, with minimal vertical, well, then I'm just, I'm never gonna create increased vertical. You can't do that. It's, a, it's an individual case. And I don't think any sleep dentist out there would argue that there can be some variations with different patients with different verticals. So I, I'm a believer in, in checking verticals. Uh, we use the pharyngometer. Uh, I don't know of a better technique than this. I know some people like it. Some people don't wanna put the money into this, which is fine. Uh, I'm using it as the best vertical guess that I can find. Um, I don't know a better way, but this is the technique that I use. Um, but just at least agree that that vertical can make a significant difference in the efficacy of your appliance. So if you didn't use a pharyngometer or some other technique, um, if the patient hasn't quite, um, they're not, they can't advance further, okay? And you've got a minimum vertical. Well, there are other techniques for increasing the vertical. Uh, this is what I used to do. I don't do this anymore but you can put things as long as they adhere well, <laughs> they need to adhere to the appliance. You don't want it coming off and, and having them swallow them. But use whatever technique you can find to increase the vertical and then retest them. And this is how I became convinced actually that vertical can make a big difference. I did a lot of this for a while and I saw sometimes I saw significant improvements with increased vertical. So Give that a shot, give it a try and see if, if maybe that could improve your patients that don't improve enough uh, with just the uh, forward movement of their mandible. There's something called rostral fluid shift. Uh, many of you have heard about this as well. It's just when we sit down, most people these days sit down all day and the fluid pools in their calves. When that happens, uh, it, it stays there. They don't urinate it out. They can't because it's pooled in the calves. They don't sweat it out. So they end up lying down at night and it runs rosterly towards the neck. And we see an increase in AHI numbers and the disease. Um, so we suggest that you maybe raise the, the head of the bed. And many patients have already done this. They figured it out. They've, they've actually bought a bed that will lift up 
Uh, they're sleeping on two pillows on purpose because of this. So they've already figured this out largely. We suggest either the GI blocks or the bed wedges, something like that. There's all kinds of ways. Uh, if you don't want to spend a lot of money on a, on a brand new bed, that's kind of like a hospital bed. Compression stocking, stocking can also help. I personally wear these things every day. I don't call them compression stockings. I just call them long socks. But I'm a big believer in the fact that, in fact, I stand up all day too. So it's, it's not that I sit down, but I know that it can improve my apnea. Um, I wear an appliance every night and I, I want all the help I can get. Uh, positional therapy, um, you guys know all about this. There's no need for me to go into that. But um, just so you know, if you don't, there's plenty of research showing that positional therapy can be effective. I know that most of my patients don't want to use positional therapy. I get that. But at least I talk to every patient about this, especially if their AHI is controlled on their side, but not on their back with the appliance. And I'll, I'll conclude with a few other therapies. Inspire, you've probably heard of by now. They've done a massive amount of advertising, especially here in the Dallas area. A lot of the beta testing was done in this area. So maybe you aren't hearing it as much in your areas that I am in mine. But we've seen some improvements and some patients go through this. It was first approved in Medicare here in the state of Texas. And then insurance companies have come on and they've started paying for it. $35,000, $40,000. It's amazing to me but they do have some parameters that have been broadened. Uh, their AHI used to be more constricted and they've, they've broadened that. Um, but in general, I, I tell patients, really, you need to fail an oral device and, and PAP therapy first before you do something like this. Uh, but we do refer patients out for this, especially if they're intolerant to PAP and they have a TMJ problems, for example, that won't allow them to wear an appliance at all. I say, well, why don't you try this Inspire? And I'll send them to the ENT. And then there's Excite OSA. This is uh, one of the newest techniques on the market. And we're having some good success with this as well. It's kind of hit or miss. I never really know, but we do. We're always adding things again to try to improve the patient's, uh, like, like sometimes we have some residual snoring. Uh, their, their fatigue's gone. Uh, they've, they've, they've adjusted the appliance out like farther than I can ever get my jaw. And they're still snoring some. So we say, hey, why don't you try this Excite? Right now, it's a money-back guarantee. Those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's neuromuscular stimulation of the tongue. I tell patients it's like a workout for your tongue. Your tongue is kind of flabby. And the idea behind it is just like you'll tone up your other muscles, you're toning up your tongue so that it doesn't collapse as easily back into your airway. And it's just 20 minutes a day for 42 days. Um, doesn't take much time and effort. And there's a money-back guarantee. So it's something that we talk about quite a bit. And that is it for me. Do we have any questions? <laughs> yes, quite a few. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, seriously, thank you. Uh, so I, I, I might be going in reverse order, but um, Dr. Rashmi, he had a couple of questions, but let's start with the Excite because you just covered that. Um, can you prescribe that or is it only prescribed by an MD and also the cost? Um, just give us a ballpark for what it costs to patients. Yeah, we can prescribe it and it costs the dentist $550 and you can decide whatever you want to charge patients. Uh, at first they were rec recommending $750 and then $950 and now if it's on your website anywhere, it's supposed to be $1650. 
you can't advertise anything but 1650. In fact, if you go on their website, it'll say 1650. So mm -hmm. when the patient comes to you from their website and you and you give them a figure less than that, you're a hero. Yep, that's they figured it out because I was uh, talking to somebody at 550 to 750, and that was not going to happen in the market. <laughs> uh, no, that, no that's like uh, that's like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee that in network you know gives you 10 percent above your lab bill uh, yeah. in network. Um, Okay, so uh, another one, uh, is oral clients possible for patients with upper and lower complete dentures? That's one of the most common questions I get. Um, I'm gonna say yes, but I will say most of the time, this is with my Medicare patients. Um, you'll see some non-Medicare, but most people with full dentures are, are Medicare age. And so in my office, it's not gonna cost them anything to try, but I will make sure that they're willing to wear them at night and make sure that they wear adhesive. And then I will use a number six round burr and go into the papilla area. I get permission from the patient first, but I'll create uh, indentations uh, in the papilla area between premolars and molars so that the appliance can lock into those. Uh, that's never a problem. I tell patients, you're never gonna feel those. No one's gonna see them. Doesn't harm the denture, but it works really well in helping that denture lock in or the appliance lock in, but it can create some sore problems that they didn't have before with the dentures, most likely in the upper canine area. And you just tell the patient, if you, if you have any sore spots in this area, we can relieve on your denture a little bit, make that more comfortable. This is no guarantee that it's going to work, but since it's not going to cost you any money, that's how I word it. Yeah. Otherwise, at some point you're talking about implant located dentures and switching that up and yep. that is going to cost them some money. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. Uh, shift back to uh, the CBT therapy. Couple of questions on that. Mm -hmm. uh, one is uh, Dr. Rashmi has uh, several patients with C um, that he referred for CBTI. Compliance sucks. Uh, so, what are your fancy magic wands for getting patients to comply? Well, first of all, Rashmi is a female, so I want to make sure you. <laughs> My apologies. Yeah, but it's because I know her. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, CBTI. It, it, every, that's why I give them three options. Uh, and factually, I have a brochure and I say, you know, uh, this psychologist, which is my sister, I say, she does everything telemed. It's really easy. You don't even have to leave your, your bedroom. You can talk to her this way. She accepts medical insurance, all that. And then I say, you got the CBTI app on your phone. And of course, you can go to this course that I've talked to them about. So I try to get some buy-in, but you can't mm -hmm. force patients. I mean, all we can do is educate them and, and they get to make the final decision. Yeah, got it. A uh, little bit pointed from Martin. Uh, I thought you were going to be talking about failures. And uh, your, your spin is, uh, hey, here's the things that don't work. And then here's what we do. So his question, how do you address patients? who've developed open bites in both short-term and long-term use uh, of OAT? Ah, yes. Uh, I let the patient make the decision. I mean, we tell them at the very beginning, I I'm assuming we're talking about posterior open bites. I've only had maybe two anterior open bite patients and all depends on the curve of speed, but most, I'm assuming he's talking about posterior open bite. So yes, I talk to patients and tell them that this is a possibility. I say, we're going to give you four different ways to get your bite back in the morning. 
but I nor any of my team members can be there with you every morning to make sure you get your bite back. So it is up to you to make sure that your teeth are back to home base sometime in the day. If it's not, and we don't see you, we don't hear from you, you have made the decision to allow that to happen. Are you okay with that? And, and we're, we're pretty strong with that. So mm -hmm. I have never, ever had a patient complain to me no, with the attitude that it's my fault. Now, they'll come back and they'll say, you know, my assistant will say, hey, Dr. Smith, uh, you need to come in here and see Susan. Uh, she's developed an open bite. Um, they don't use those words, but right. you know, she just she's not really concerned. Right. She just wants to talk to you about it. You know, that's kind of how it usually goes. And then I'll say, listen, this this could be a life saving therapy that I'm removing from you. I can't tell you to stop wearing this because it could be saving your life or somebody else's. Only Got you it. can. So you've got to make the decision. Is this side effect not worth the benefit that you're getting? And then you make the decision. Got it. Uh, so uh, along the, I got a question from the chat, um, along the lines of, uh, failures, what would you consider a failure? Well, when the patient isn't happy with what any treatment that you provided and, and they're, and I, oh, I get those. Yep. And okay. in, that, in that case, I say, all right, you know, you told me when you came in that you did not want a PAP or a CPAC, regardless <laughs> of what happens, you, you did not want that. And I yeah. said, are you sure you don't want that? And you said, yes. Well, now will you consider it? I mean, we just try to get them to, to go back to PAP if they've already tried it or to try it now if they never tried it. And some do, yeah. some don't, and some refuse. And they just say, listen, I'd just rather die in my sleep than wear that snuffleupagus thing. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's going to be the comment. The uneducated, not holistic perspective for patients. Yeah. Um, what do you do if the patient has central sleep apnea uh, rather than OSA? And I would also say, in addition to OSA, maybe the same or different answers. Yeah. Well, I've actually had sleep physicians refer central apneic patients to me for appliances. There's an excellent article by Eckert on... Um, and again, I can send this to anybody that wants, and I read it about once every year, and it takes about three or four times through it before you understand it, but it's the, about the cross-pollination between uh, central and obstructive sleep apnea, and we've seen it time after time. We fix their obstructive sleep apnea, and many of the central events go away, and I think some sleep physicians know this, some don't, but I'm not scared to treat a patient with central apnea. Yep. I'm so glad you said that. Um... Like I mentioned earlier, we, we do send out a math email to everybody with the CE link. So if it's easier, we'd be happy to math distribute that um, to folks in that. Uh, to your point, I'm guessing that it's old school, old school versus new school. 15 years ago, central sleep apnea and 15 to 18 years ago, DSA and OSA were completely different treatment paths. They were using BiPAP STs for that. Now sure. they've got all the different studies, some of which you just mentioned right there. And the newer or more uh, more newly educated sleep docs that are better well-read in some of the newer studies, they're not basing a lot of those treatment principles off of the old school stuff. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, if Good. you're intolerant, a BiPAP intolerant, a mask intolerant, then right. you got to try something. And since yep. we know that we've had some success, I, I keep doing it. Yep. So uh, uh, got another question. Um, if the AHI goes down significantly, the, but the patient is still snoring, uh, what are some treatments to get rid of the snoring? You address that if you want to just recap real quick what your next yeah. one or two go-tos would be. Right. So I talk about positional therapy. I talk about elevating the head of the bed. I talk about Excite OSA. Those are the primary things that I discuss. Uh, and lastly, uh, earplugs for the bed partner. <laughs> and if they're fancy, they go spend $300 on the, you know, Bose noise making earbuds, you know, to sleep in, just not yeah, on their yeah. side. And honestly, yeah. you turn that brown noise up to max on your Alexa, you can't hear anything else. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right. So what if instead of full dentures, the patient has removable posterior partials? Since oral appliances primarily have posterior retention, how would you make the appliance for these types of patients? They are Medicare and only Herbst appliances are covered by their insurance. What would you recommend? Yeah, and this is another common question, even from my team. Uh, in fact, today I had this very question and they sent me a photo from my other location of the patient's dentition. Thankfully, they had gotten a scan all the way back. Now with the, with the Herbst, yeah, I, I get that, but you've got to have, it's more important to actually have teeth in the posterior because of the way the hinges are um, in the upper. So on the lower, if you can rest the appliance on the, on the tissue, and that works fine, but it also depends on exactly how many teeth they have. If they've still got premolars, but just no molars, this is still effective. We can still make this work. Awesome. Um, okay, what about low-level therapy as an adjunct? The research on that. Low low-level therapy. You know what, uh, MJ, if you want to uh, respond in there, I'll go ahead and ask the question again, if we can get some more details on that. Uh, I'll move on to the next one. Uh, Abby, you've got, uh, do you recommend yearly follow-up HSTs after AHI is treated or just annual checkups uh, based on the patient's subjective symptoms? Uh, yeah, we, we treat, we see patients after they've been effectively treated, we see them six months later and then yearly after that. And of course, many times they fall off and they just say, you know what, I'm doing great. I don't need to come back in. The people that are most likely to fail their appointments are our follow-up patients because they're doing fine and they just don't see the need. Uh, so that's unfortunate, but yeah, it, it really depends on what their HI was to begin with and what their auction level was like to begin with. But it, yeah, if it's like a patient that had an HI of 32 and you got them down to seven and they're feeling great, then life, things happen in life. They, they gain weight, they start taking medications, they're drinking more. I mean, doesn't everybody drink more as they get older? No, I don't know that, but um, <laughs> things obviously change. So we do, we do, we go by symptoms, yes. So if they come back in and say, I'm doing great, you know, my bite changed a little bit, but I don't care, uh, you know, then, you know, we might not. But uh, I like to do that follow-up study for sure, because we like to report back to the referring physician um, that they're still being adequately treated. Got it. Awesome. Uh, Scott asks uh, if we can post the CE link again, team, if you can just copy and paste that in there. Uh, looks like somebody missed it. That'd be awesome in the chat. Thanks, Scott. Um, 
Amanda asked, what are the four ways for patients to get their bite back? Okay, so there's the AM aligner, which we will make for them. We'll make them, you know, you've probably seen the, the pads. Yeah. We have chewing gum. And, and I ask patients, do you, do you take a shower in the morning? Uh, if you do, and about 80% of the population takes a shower in the morning. So if you do that, uh, put a stick of gum in your mouth, start chewing that, let the hot water beat on the muscles uh, while you're taking a shower. By the time you get out, you could be good to go. Then there's the thinking position where you hold this under your chin and you lean on it. We tell them to do that. Um, and then there's the, the bite tabs that we use as well. So these are you know, horizontal uh, strips of, of uh, uh, plastic, basically. Uh, I think we get them, uh, right late. I don't remember where we get them. Uh, Keystone, I think. Uh, and then we just cut strips and we give them that as well, just in case they lose their AM aligner. We had a, a one today. This stuff happens all the time. The dog ate the AM aligner, so he was coming back in for another one. So the, the bite tabs, they can use that as a replacement for that. Got it. Awesome. Uh, what do you think about night, night lace uh, therapy? Or let's just say, not specifically the night lace, unless you have an opinion on that one, uh, any laser treatment as an adjunct therapy. Okay. I thought that might be what they meant by low level, that they're talking about the lasers. So um, I, I personally have, have never tried one. I know quite a few dentists that have. And with some success, but I can't really speak well on that because I just don't have the experience. Sorry. Got it. Um, initial HST with WatchPat from referring doc. Then we use a night owl for follow-up and titration. Is this apples to apples or apples to oranges? How do you know if you're on the right path? Yeah, I think that's apples to oranges. <laughs> we, uh, yes. I, know, I know it's cheaper to use a night lace. I get that. Um, I just like that positional component of the watch pad. That's what I'm, that's just by far our favorite. And it's our sleep physician's favorite as well. And we get a lot of watch pad referrals coming in to us. That's what we see. So it's, I just always like apple to apples. Yeah, got it. And uh, anonymous, what's being lasered? Uh, the soft palate. Uh, that's what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. Uh, have you ever heard of this or recommended making the tight appliances specifically like, let's say the Prosomnus Evo that comes in very exact from the scan. Do you ever make it in a more passive fit or um, do you order it? No, I know there's a loose setting. If you, I think that's what they're trying to ask. Yeah. I'll speak um, on that. Yeah, yeah. I think if you've done, you know, five of them, for example, and they're, they're all tight and you have to adjust them, then all you have to do is tell them, uh, we need to dial the tightness down. I mean, they use computers to do it. It is really easy for them to back off on the tightness of those. So it's just a, a simple request. Uh, we had that to begin with. I mean, my first Evo was way too tight. And I told them, this is not going to work it, on me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they redid it. And I said, nope, still too tight. And mm -hmm. finally, the third one, just right. And I said, okay. <laughs> this is how I want them. This bed feels perfect. This is how I want <laughs> Goldilocks. <laughs> right, yeah. To feel yeah. On, on all of my patients. It needs to be a little more passive than what you've got it. But we had a patient today. He's out on upper 10. And every time he uses one, uh, after a while, it gets loose. So you deal with that sometimes too, because they do get loose over time. Yep. 
Yep, absolutely. Uh, there's one I'm going to take here, if, if that's right, as a sleep tech. Uh, is there a test, re well, let's do it together. Is there a test recommendation that aren't as expensive as the watch pad? Uh, I'll, I'll say it this way, guys. The watch pad is the Ferrari. You don't complain about the oil change when you buy the Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> it's got all the channels. It's got all the whiz bangs and it's outstanding data. Um, based on what Dr. Smith said, uh, I'll answer at least from our end. We have uh, another unit that has positional and it has lower disposable costs. It's a really a question of what channels you want to get. So if you're looking for very specific things that are related to WatchPat, i.e. like a Ferrari, then you're going to want to purchase that. It's a fantastic unit. But there are other uh, cost uh, efficient alternatives out there that are not as expensive if you don't need that same footprint in those same channels. Yeah, and then the problem with the apnea link, and we've had a bunch of those before, that ResMed stopped servicing them. So yep. you just, I wouldn't suggest that one right now, but specifically for that reason, even though the disposables are cheap, yep. you can't get them serviced. Yep, we, we actually service those. Uh, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> we do. <laughs> Uh, and and the other the other one that I was mentioning is the Philips Alice Knight one. So similar footprint, but it has the positional data with the average apnea length, the longest apnea length, um, and it does have the positional as well. And we get sleep, wake, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Well, we're about to inherit thirty apnea links, um, and we were told by um, the people I was talking to you about before that they they yep. haven't been able to get them serviced. So you you may be getting some units here pretty soon. Yep. Yeah. Re I mean, ResMed purchased Night Owl. So they're, they're not dumb. They're, they're phasing out the apnea length over time that they're boarded on the ship that's sailing towards the sunset. Yeah. We, we happen to have quite the, uh, quite the supply depot, if you will, to help fix those. All right. Yep. Um, so uh, Thomas asked, uh, what about high-res pulse oximeter devices like the SAT screen? Want to weigh in on that? I mean, I think it's okay for screening. Um, and if you want to follow, if your patient has, their only problem is oxygen, or that is their biggest problem, I think using high-res pulse ox is good. Uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't suggest using it for diagnostic purposes. I mean, because you can't. Um, insurance right. will file that. <laughs> <laughs> but we see many patients with uh, we described before, you know, their their nadir is 88 and their HI is 42. Yep. Yep. Um, man, we're getting a lot of questions on the HST stuff. I think we opened a can here. Uh -oh. uh, your opinion on the um, Z machine HST by General Sleep? I have not used it, so I, I can't comment. Cool. Um, uh, Fernando, does Awaken to Sleep sell the Night Owl? We do not retail the Night Owl. We're not authorized resellers of that. Uh, we can interpret studies for Night Owl. So we have a panel of sleep docs. If you need that support in your state, you don't have a local doctor, uh, we can do that for you. Um, we answer the HRPL one. Uh, if teeth are lingually tipped, what appliance is best, um, to fit into undercuts and um, will come out with will come out without too much trouble. Yeah, if they're lingually tipping, you don't see too many patients like this, but the lingualist appliances are going to be the best for those. Um, they can just yeah. barely overlap the lingual. 
and still get good retention and, and not worry about not being able to, to get it out of their patient's mouth. Yep. Uh, two more. Man, you are a rock star. <laughs> 17 after going strong. Um, all right. Stan asked this. Uh, he's 75. He's getting spaces opening uh, in the molars, premolars, using a dorsal from Keller and an AM aligner. <clears throat> um, there is a distal wrap on second molars. Any ideas what to do? He's thinking about using a ortho chain to close the spaces. Boy, yeah, I was that he answered my question that the distal wrap wasn't there. I mean, it was nobody was doing well. I'm not going to say it. Never mind. I don't want to go there. Um, distal wrapping is huge, very important. I don't know how you're getting spaces opening up if you've got distal wrap and it's it's intimately done. Now, I don't, uh, I haven't done any appliances from Keller. I don't know how loose those are. Is that got a, a flex lining or is it got, does it have ball class? Let me ask that. So, because if it does, that can open up contacts. Yeah. Stan, if you're if you're still on and you want to answer that, uh, we'd love to get back to you. So hit, hit us up in the Q&A for an answer to Dr. Smith's question. Uh, we'll move to Roy. Is there a way to get the bite back after it's changed? It really depends on how long it's, it, if there's been a disc retrieval, no, and it wouldn't make sense to, but in general, if it's just muscles that are shortening, um, you can do it. Uh, I've had mis mixed success with it, and largely it depends on how long that bite's been that way. And I tell patients, you know, if you if you come back, if you decide in the first couple of months that you get this bite change and you'd rather stop using the appliance, it'll probably go back. But I say, if you come back in two years and it's been changed for a couple of years, it's not going back without orthodontics. Yep. And even then, it's questionable. Yeah, not not if they've had condylar remodeling. Right. <laughs> uh, so Stan did get back to us. No ball clasps, all acrylic. All acrylic. Man, I, I wonder if the embrasure, uh, if he, and that's a problem with some scanners, they extrapolate and the embrasure areas are going to be putting pressure in between the teeth, which theoretically could open it. But man, it's, it's pretty unusual for a 100% acrylic appliance, unless that's the case that for space to open up. There's just nowhere for teeth to go. I mean, it's a retain. Yeah. So yeah. I'm a little puzzled right now. So Stan, if you want to email Dr. Smith at info at sleepdallas.com, <laughs> uh, Doc, what would you recommend if he, if he did something else? Well, uh, I, Like well, tried a different appliance, maybe? What would you recommend? Well, I think so sometimes also, you know, that speaking to that acrylic going to the brazier areas, sometimes that'll compress the gum tissue and they'll start collecting food in, uh, in the embrasure area and not occlusally. So that would be another question I have. Um, but if he's talking about just wide open spaces with floss, for example, like there's no more snap, then uh, yeah, I'd love to maybe, I, I do know that sometimes clinchers can somehow do this. And it's, it's still amazing to me when you've got the teeth retained by acrylic. I mean, it's a, it's a great retainer. So to be opening up spaces, mm -hmm. it would almost have to be a clincher. But again, uh, I haven't seen the case or the, the before and after, so it's hard for me to judge. Got it. Dr. Rashmi said, uh, clencher with interproximal acrylic will do it for sure, adjust the acrylic. All right. You made it. 
we had a lot of questions. Uh, you it. all, it. yeah, it's, it's good, man. It's good. Uh, so to you all in the audience, uh, so many of you have stayed 20 minutes over. We appreciate you. Thank you for giving us your time and hanging out tonight. Doc, thank you as well for your time and all the pearls. Any parting words for these guys as they get out there and do more work? Basically, guys, don't give up. I know there's this isn't a slam duck field, but it is so rewarding. And I don't want failures to get you down because everybody has failures. Everybody. And physicians have it. Everybody has failures and just know it's just part of it. Uh, and I know many dentists are, are, they're a little anal. They're, they're a little like, you know, I got to, everything got to be perfect. I got to get the HI on to zero or it's a failure. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's Hang not. in there, guys. Yeah. And uh, thank you all. We appreciate you. Hope you have a great night. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakenasleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.